Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. processes. Everyone needs them, and we all keep talking about how important they are to running your business and driving value into your company. But so many businesses fail to execute on this principle, and in the end, it costs them dearly. My latest guest is a walking, talking testament to the power of process. Now, to give you some context here, there's not many people I know who took nine weeks off in the last year on holidays with his family just to come back after all that and find the business humming along just as well as it was when he left, maybe even a little bit better. Now, Kobe is the founder and CEO of Best Practice, which is the largest Australian-owned auditing and quality assurance certification business. Now, if you don't know what I mean by all that, think of the ISO accreditations that people do and the regular sort of certification they need to, uh, to maintain each year. Now, for the past 17 years, Kobe's been working and scaling his business, as well as helping other businesses do the same. And as Kobe says, it's not rocket science, it's all in the details. So from future-proofing your management systems to unlocking wild growth, Kobe drops some massive insights and tips on how you can scale your business in the right way. This is Kobe Simmer. G'day, Kobe. Welcome to the show. Hey, mate. Thank you. And uh, good to see you again. Yeah, you too. You too. Uh, so, so quick disclaimer here for everybody listening. Um, you know, I, I, I know Kobe. I've known Kobe now for a couple of years. I was, uh, I was a guest speaker, actually, at one of uh, Kobe's business summits that he did last year, who had uh, quite a lot of big headline acts in there. So I felt very humbled uh, to be invited on there, Kobe. So thank you once again for that. Mate, I've, I've been super excited about having you on the show you know, I've got a lot of time and respect for you. I think you've built a fabulous business in best practice. Um, but, I, but I guess one of the things I really wanted to, um, to chat about today is, is just about your journey. You know, I think with a lot of our guests, we've talked about their specific transaction and, and kind of what happened in the deal, right? But, but your journey has been an interesting one because I think you've, you've seen a lot of challenges in your life and, and along this business journey and you've built a fabulous business and you've even to the point where you've had a lot of people come and tap you on the shoulder. And, and I think, you know, you and I have had a bit of a chat about how that can kind of lead to a lot of time wasting and even disaster at times of various people. And so, look, mate, I'm, I'm so keen to just unpack your story a little bit because there's so many lessons in there for entrepreneurs who are on their journey growing a business and, and even those who might even have one eye on an eventual exit. So, mate, I, I, I'm going to hand over to you because I'd love, I'd love you to kick off and maybe you can give us a bit of background and, and, and help paint the picture of who Kobe Simmons is. 
Yeah, look, um, I think um, I'll, te- I'll, tell a re- I'll tell a story that goes over a five-year journey, and I think that really sets up, um, I-, I guess, the context for, for, for where we are today and where we can go. And, um, and it's, the, it's the kind of exit from a business that you don't want to have. Um, and, and, um, and so my journey starts, this story starts when I'm 14 years old. Um, I'm going to Davidson High School in French's Forest in Sydney. And, you know, in the late 80s, that high school was renowned for um, a lot of entrepreneurs selling a lot of uh, organic produce in school. Um, and, um, <laughs> and so, um, it, you know, it wasn't a school with a great reputation, uh, but there was a lot of entrepreneurial people. Um, and, you know, they would grow their produce in the lo- local national park and then sell it in high school. Now, <laughs> so, the, so we're talking the un- the not approved by the, uh, the, the Food approved. and Drug Administration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> definitely not, not, not TPA approved drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, I didn't really partake in that, but, but you know, it was a, it was a high school full of, um, of, 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 of suburban families um, white collar families, a lot of parents, um, you know, working in the finance industry, um, you know, from French's Forest commuting into Sydney, um, you know, on the bus or the or the train, um, and so you know, my high school friends, a lot of them were double income families, um, you know, two or three kids, um, you know, quarter acre block backyard kind of thing. I I actually myself grew up in a suburb called Cottage Point, waterfront residence around. Um, what was an emerging area was one of the high-value suburbs of Sydney at the time. Deep waterfronts, boats, uh, wealthy families, and so I, I kind of I, I drew up, I grew up in this contradiction of on the weekends I'm in this very wealthy suburb, and then I'm going to this uh, this state high school, and, and and so I got to meet lots of great people from all walks of life. So so um, I'm 14 years old. My dad is an architect. Um, he's got his own business. He's got about 30 staff. You know, um, uh, about 15 company cars parked out the front of the office at nine o'clock in the morning, and he's got people, you know, coming to and fro. Um, at the time, there was a boom in the housing market um, in Sydney, and and specifically project homes, you know, expansion suburbs, and so they were submitting, you know, up to 25 approvals every Friday. So they would do all the design work during the week, and then lodge. 25 sets of plans at council, and then take a couple of weeks to have those houses approved, and there was just it was just this sausage factory of construction and we were, you know, he was winning awards for design and, and energy efficiency and all that kind of stuff in the late 80s. Mate, um, a couple of weeks for approvals, he, he must have been special or known someone. Jeez. Well, well I mean, it, it's um, obviously, um, obviously they got, a lot, got away with a lot and the, and the world and the laws have changed in that time yeah. for those reasons. But, you know, they were, they were copy-paste houses on, on – yeah on residential estate developments. And so there really wasn't any environmental planning or control required. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I guess the story is essentially that I grew up in a family with a, with a father that started an architectural practice. He also did a bit of construction and a bit of development. So I, I didn't have, you know, the man in my life, my, my dad, my, my leader was an entrepreneur and I didn't have any other example to follow. So I'm sitting in social studies class, 14 years old, in right in the middle of high school, and the teacher says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a business owner. Um, everybody else, fireman, pilot, nurse, doctor, vet, zookeeper, you know, all employee jobs. And at the time, you know, the word entrepreneur didn't exist. Entrepreneurial pursuit was the word, but it wasn't a label for anyone yet. So it was just business owner. So I'm going to have my own business. Um, and and I guess 
when I look back at that and I think, what was I thinking? I was thinking, well, you know, we had family holidays where dad would be doing site inspections and looking at projects and we'd be staying in a hotel and going doing family activities while dad was working. And, and he kind of built this national business and had projects all over the place and lots of developers that he worked with. And so then the people we'd have at dinner parties were developers and business people or successful people having houses commissioned. And he did a lot of really high value houses and a lot of really big houses. So, you know, we would dinner parties with those families and build friendships and, and multiple houses for multiple people. And so you'd be in amongst those houses while they're being built and have a lot of fun playing, you know, with my brother and sister, mm. you know, lots of boating and, and we were in that kind of family. And so it just so, kind of made sense. Go yeah, ahead. So, so, no, so, so I mean, I'm, I'm getting this picture here that, you know, business owner slash quite entrepreneurial father in terms of he's got a number of pursuits even outside his core business, but even the people you're hanging with in your family time and social circles are fundamentally business owners. Is, yeah, is, is that the right? Yeah, yeah. 100%. And, and one person that's a highlight, which I think is worth noting, is somebody who commissioned a really big house to be built and he did that with money from exiting a dental business. So he was he was the, the dental parts wholesaler, you know, gotcha. the, the, the parts for braces and dentures and, and all that kind of stuff. And he had just sold his business for $3 million. Wow. And so, you know, and, and, and that's back in the mid-80s and he commissioned this house that I think was about half a million dollars to build. Um, yeah. He had the latest Mercedes, all that kind of stuff. So um, it was, you know, it was really interesting to be around those people. So I kind of really didn't have a choice as to where I would go. Um, fast forward two or three years and I've got a great sense of pride for my dad. I'm his biggest fan with lots of great buildings and lots of great developments. And in the, at the beginning of the 90s, the construction industry collapsed. Now, there's some intricacies to the story which we won't go into, but my essentially my dad's business collapsed um, mm. and um, he lost a whole bunch of property. He had to basically liquidate a whole bunch of properties to, to kind of try to keep the business afloat. And then eventually we had our house repossessed in 1994. Oh, so, man. And, and, and to paint the scene there for, again, I mean, for, for those who are, uh, you know, getting a bit on like, you know, of our age and older, I mean, we, re we remember the recession we had to have, right? So you talk about the property collapse. I mean, this was not just property. It was hotels, no. tourism, everything collapsed, right? <laughs> um, Absolutely. So it was, it was a tough time. But, um, but mate, to, to lose the family home, I mean, that, that, must have, that must have been devastating for everybody. Absolutely devastating. And, and you know, um, you know, I, I won't drop the bank in it. Like, I don't like that bank. I won't do business with that bank. That bank is, mm. you know, they had their one chance and I'll never do business with that bank and, and it's one of the big four. Um, they, they, you know, and there was corruption in that bank and, and that contributed to this situation, um, you know, that all came out in the court case and the washout afterwards. Mm. Um, and they were found liable and, and they were found in breach and there's new rules and we've just been through the Royal Commission. I think, you know, they need to be held accountable. Anyway, long story short, um, that we were given four days to move out of our family home. Um, oh, man. The locks were changed and the sheriff came with the locksmiths on at 11 o'clock on the Friday, which was the notification. You know, they gave us a notification on the Monday. We had to be out by 11 o'clock on the Friday. The sheriff, two sheriffs came with a locksmith and they, they changed the locks. Now... Um, knowing the house, we could still, you know, we could have still got back into it because it, it wasn't, it was an architect's house. It wasn't finished. So it was quite easy to get back into. <laughs> but my mum, you know, the, the, they were basically going to put the property on the market. And my mum, you know, the, the lowest of the low point was when the, the two sheriffs 
grabbed my mum by, by the arms and dragged her out of the house crying. She was trying to clean the windows because the property was going on the market. Oh, because man. It, with the repossessions, the banks just, you know, if there was plates in the cupboard or food in the fridge, whatever was left in the house, the house mortgagee in possession, the house went on the market. And, and I have this, this very vivid memory of, um, you know, of, of my mum crying and being really distraught because she just wanted to clean the, clean the windows and clean the house so it was presentable for sale. Because when your house gets repossessed, the bank liquidates it, they put it to auction with no reserve, and, and you only get, the, you know, the bank gets paid out. They're just interested in getting their mortgage paid out. Hmm. They don't care whether there's a bit more money. We were trying to obviously get the upside. Yes. Um, and so mum was like, well, I need the house to get the best price possible in a bad hmm. climate just so that we can get A, the debt covered, because if the house didn't cover the debt, they would have come after us further. Um, oh, man. So, so, you know, I don't want to labour on it for too long because at, for you grow from your very lowest point. So. Hmm. I think that, you know, we realised realized the real risk, it came to fruition, the real risk of being an entrepreneur and what you do put on the line in business. Mm. And that drives me every day. And so, you know, I appreciate the, the compliments on building a great business. I built a great business because I've looked at the building blocks and the foundations that are required and I've searched for those things, the, the hygiene principles and the motivating principles and the fundamental model principles um, to make sure that um, you know history doesn't repeat itself, and mm. I've and 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 a lot of people have noticed that I that I over index on on those foundational principles, but as a result, it's it's catapulted us to success. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's had kind of the reverse effect, you know, in terms of actually being so regimented and into routine in, in terms of basic business model principles and and mm. drivers. Um, we, we've got a great result. Yeah, and, and and I think you know we'll get we'll get into this a little bit because I, I want to talk a little bit about systems and scalability because I think I think everybody kind of knows you know at a basic level that you can't grow without systems, right? It, yeah. Once you get beyond a couple of people running around being good at what they do, if you want to get bigger, you need to systemize and and fundamentally, I mean, this is this is somewhat where kind of best practice leans in, right? So so mate, t- tell us a bit about best practice. What what does it actually do? Yeah, look, it's it's got three core components to the business. What what we're really passionate about is three things, and it's our why, if you like. So I'll, I'll talk about you know the why, how, what, if you like. Yep. So the why is about helping organisations to be great places to work, so that great talent bangs on your door and says, "I want to work for you." People say, "How do you find great people?" Well, I find them by going to the front door and opening it, and they're standing there waiting to come in. You know, yep. it's not about going into the market, and and there it's really easy to do. Um, but we kind of neglect um, some of those basic principles. So creating great places to work, great places to buy from. So focusing on the your the people listening, the buyer's experience, mm-hmm. the individuality of the buyer's experience, the different types of buyers, the riches are in the niches. And I hate the word niche, but <laughs> you know it rhymes, right? The niches and and it's yes, you can have you can have your core product or service, but build four or five front doors to your house. Don't have a front door and a back door to your, to your business. Have five front doors so that different types of customers can come in different doors. So creating a great buying experience and then ultimately a great investment. So great place to work, great place to buy from, great place to invest in. And mm-hmm. that is around exactly your topic. That's why we work quite well together because 
I'm, I'm focused for some of our clients um, on that priority of, well, what does a succession plan, exit plan, divestment look like for them? Mm. Mm. And, and so what service does best practice deliver to its clients? Awesome. So, so I guess, um, so when we get down to it, we started a core business where we looked at process improvement. So we did, there's a couple of different ways you can attack that. You can be a management consultant, you can be a business coach, you can be an auditor. So we started a business in 2004 doing quality assurance auditing and quality assurance management systems and writing management systems following the international standards. So a lot of people may have heard of ISO 9001 and the quality management standard. And when they think about that, they imagine or they've seen, you know, five milk crates full of folders and, and policies and procedures have been written until they're, it's a bigger book than Gone with the Wind. So, you know, it's it's that's where we started and we started in 94 with that, you know, that um, that concept. I wrote some for my dad's business. I went away from the industry for a little while and then we restarted again in 2004. Mm-hmm. And we've been operating since 2004. So our core foundations were helping people write operations manuals, helping people write policy, helping people write procedure. Then when we did that, we, you know, we go into a business, we watch what's doing. Um, and then we'll start documenting it for them, saying, you know, and for there are various benefits to having things documented. Um, mm-hmm. I'll comment on what the future looks like because that's, mm-hmm. please don't assume anyone listening that you do that now because we've mm-hmm. moved away from that. But we started the business with auditing, then we got into OHS auditing and we hired some OHS technicians, uh, then environmental management asset management, and now it's cybersecurity. So what happened in the end of the 2000s is this label risk management or risk management advisor came out. And for any of the business owners um, who have ever filled out a professional indemnity form, you've now got to comment about your risk management plan. And so we started writing risk management plans and implementing risk management plans with people. So what does the business look like now? We've definitely still got that auditing business. We're the largest Australian-owned auditing, you know, quality assurance and certification auditing company. So best practice certification. And for those people listening, you, you might now notice as you're driving around the streets, you'll see the best practice ticks on people's vehicles. A lot of our clients wear our brand on their vehicles and on their business cards and on their websites um, as a sign of recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spun off a business coaching company. So we started to realize, actually, we want to do more work with people. We found that we can actually be more impactful instead of writing the best policies and procedures on the planet. And we can do a very good job of that. And we're very good at it. We're well-versed 17 years in this industry, but we found that actually, when we talk about impact to the bottom line, impact to the top line, impact to the business, the people piece we found was actually we were more successful in actually seeing significant growth in businesses. So we spun off next practice Mm -hmm. and we, Next practice is our business coaching company. We're training coaches, we're building coaches, we're building out, we're also building out a career path for our senior people to move from, say, being an auditor into being a business coach um, and coaching people on growth plans and strategy. Uh, and we can get into the metrics of that because I can go through yeah. the 10 elements to strategy. And then the final business is recruitment company because we love people. And so we went, well, it made sense to place people in our clients because we know our client system, we know their businesses. And so we can go looking as their representative, we can go looking for people that suit our clients. And so our business uh, best practice recruitment is exploding right now. It's going really yeah. well. Yeah, fantastic. So so coming back to, to ISO and doing standard operating procedures, SOPs, all that sort of stuff. I mean, so, so best practice 
just clarify for me because I think there's the there's the trap that some people look at that stuff and go, yeah, I've heard of that. That's all for like manufacturing companies or something like that. Like so, uh, that that's not me. So maybe you can just clarify for us a little bit. What are the sort of sectors or or, or even company types? That you generally that generally use your service, you know, are they products and services? Are they, you know, can you give us a sense of the mix? Yeah, hundred percent. So right now, um, there's definitely a a uh, a breakout industry in construction, mm-hmm. um, and so um, you know, if you if you look at our organisation, you look at our client mix, um, the professional services to construction and construction um, yep. are, are definitely the breakout areas and the growing industries. And the turnover of those companies in those industries. Yep. So, um, so professional service, so actual service businesses are now going down this path. Absolutely. So, some yep. of our longstanding clients are architects, engineers, um, accountancy practices, um, um, human resource practices, um, any other service to construction, commercial cleaners. Um, you know, small, medium, and large construction companies. Yeah. Um, there, the, the. the there is definitely a bias towards anyone who wants to do any form of government work. You will need to have a management system in place. And yep. so there is a, you know, 60% of our clients do that work and get that certification so they can tender on government work and infrastructure work. So yep. you, you can't work in government infrastructure or tender to government without this. And a lot mm-hmm. of people think they can start lodging tenders and they can naively think that, oh, I'll just lodge the tender and if I win it, I'll get certified. The cart doesn't come before the horse. You've got yeah. to set yourself, if you want to work for government, you've got to set yourself up properly uh, and professionally because you're dealing with government bureaucrats who want to tick boxes. And if you can't tick that box, you get put in the out pile. Yeah, yeah. You don't even get looked at, right? Interesting. So, mate, tell me more about, so where's the industry going? Because, you, you know, this idea of writing manuals, and I think, once again, you know, we're showing our age here, but, you know, I've been in companies that had these big, dirty, big folders that they'd slap on your desk on day one and say, here's your induction, read this, and, you know, people like me end up jumping out the window. Um, so w- what does it look like now? How, how, is it, how is it evolving? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, everybody listening, your organisation has an operating system. Now, it, it is most likely, the operating system is most likely in the entrepreneur or business leader's head and the businesses that start to see some success and growth. So say, for example, you get to kind of 15, 20 people full-time, 15 to 20 full-time people, you start to see things getting captured and routines and I like to call them traditions established. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, so a lot of people say, oh, no, we don't need that. Well, you've actually already got it and you build it subconsciously. So where is the industry growing? I think going, the first thing that I'd like people to consider is the average age of employees and the workforce. And we've just seen some really good numbers in COVID um, because they've been talking about, you know, who are the people causing cases in COVID and in the pandemic? And that is the 35 to 45 year old age bracket. That is the the, uh, largest population in the workforce. And that kind of makes sense. It's logical, but we've seen it with COVID because they've said they're the high risk people that are the super spreaders because they're going to work and they're going home and they've got young families and the kids bring it home from school and then they, you know, they take it off. So, so recognizing that that 35 to 45 year old age bracket is, is there is how does a 35 year old know what to do? And they do, I'm going to cut to the chase, rely very heavily on Google. And so what we are doing now with a modern management system is I want to ask the audience a question and say, well, 
what does a management system look like in 1994? And we both know that it was five milk crates full of folders and you jump out the window. <laughs> when we fast forward to 2025, what does a management system look like? My job is to be thinking about 2025, thinking about who the workforce is going to be in 2025. What are the fundamental skills that they've picked up in high school and university and their first couple of years of work experience? And what can they bring to the workforce? And how do we seamlessly have those people set up to deliver the promises that that company makes to their customers? And that's fundamentally the question, the rhetorical question is, how do your people know how to deliver the promise to the customer? Now, if you look at a restaurant, for example, there might be a little instruction sheet in the kitchen that kind of talks about the main parts to the dish, but the head chef there is supervising everybody's doing the right thing. So let's call the head chef the head of operations. And he's supervising some qualified people and some apprentices and some laborers. That's a modern management system. So it's not a folder in the pantry of the commercial kitchen. No one's running in and out every five minutes, opening up those folders and reading that stuff. They need some basic reminders. Don't forget to do this. Don't forget to do that. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. Maybe some pictures of what the dish looks like. Um, you know, you can go into many of the different types of Asian restaurants and the menu is a picture of the dish and, and you get what, the, you know, you order what the picture, the picture is and it comes out looking like the picture. So what I'm looking at now what I'm, and, and your question, and I'll finish on this, is that what does a modern management system look like? Where's the industry going? You need to look at how the 20-year-olds are consuming information, researching and gathering information. They're watching videos on YouTube. They're watching videos on Facebook. They're searching on Facebook. They're searching on Snapchat. They're following each other's geographic location on Snapchat. They are, um, they are to a certain extent looking at Google, but they're not necessarily reading big passages of text anymore. They're looking mm -hmm. at images. They're looking at pictures. And if you look at my 10-year-old um, son, he is voice searching. Yes. And so your business needs to be thinking about, and you don't have to do it straight away, but you're, you, you need to be gearing yourself up for voice search and voice search. And so however the data is, is, is curated, but you know Google has automatic subtitles. So you could be just recording video instructions for how to run your company and what to do, turn on the automatic subtitles, and then your staff can voice search and it can trigger videos. And then they will probably watch videos reading the subtitles on triple speed. So the more that you can video key processes or key things or key tasks in your organization on a smartphone, load them into YouTube right now and have them as unlisted videos or load them into video software um, or a cloud-based video system for your company, um, that is what the modern policy procedure process looks like in 2025. And your staff who are 20 right now will be 25. You know, this is 2021, so any 21-year-olds are going to be 25. You know, any 25-year-olds are going to be 29. And they are doing voice search. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, hey, whatever. Um, I won't say Siri because my phone will um, talk to me. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's going to be that. That's yes. what's coming. And, and so we've got to be ready for that. And, and to a certain extent, think about how someone can take in a heap of information, get the guidance and advice they need, and then continue on to run your business without you being there. Yeah, yeah. And, and interesting, I heard the stat the other day, and I'm, I'm probably going to slightly misquote it, but it was words to the effect of over 75% of all search for people under the age of 25 is done by voice now. So, and, and, and that kind of, 
blew me away a little bit because I'm I'm just starting to kind of get into it, right? I, each morning I'm getting dressed and I ask my phone, I won't say its name either, um, to tell me what the weather's like because do I need to be, you know, especially in this transition season, right? So do I wear the jumper or not? But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting seeing where this is going and it's, it's clearly the beginning of a massive shift in the way we do things. I'm, I'm going to shift gear in a second, but I want to ask, I want to ask a, what might sound like a really dumb, obvious question, but I think it's important to ask because I, I think there'll be people who listen to this podcast and hear you speak, Kobe, and go, yeah, you know, but things kind of work. They just kind of work. Things are work. Why do I need to have a management system? Why do I need to go do all these videos? I don't even like my photo being taken. Why would I want to record videos? It's just working. This all sounds like a pain in the butt. So can you give us a bit of a sense of why somebody w- should, should document you know, and videoing is just another way of documenting things, right? But why should I go and create a management system like this? What's the benefit to me? Yeah, look, you know this. I took nine weeks <laughs> off this year and I had four work phone calls in nine weeks. Yeah. So um, my team uh, delivered their top line revenue uh, just below target. Uh, they delivered profit on target. They Over the first quarter of, of the 21-22 uh, financial year, they were $1,000 out on, on profit. Um, so, you know, the, the, the benefit to me that of doing it is I've recorded a bunch of videos. Um, I, I invest in a lot, in, a lot in training and professional development, um, on a frequent basis. Um, and it's more about the routine than what you do. Um, and, and we've got those things captured and I've empowered my managers to do it. Now, for me, the benefit was I got to go and take nine weeks off. Um, and I've now got this reputation for being, you know, one of the Sydney people that dodged all the lockdowns because I left <laughs> a couple of weeks before the Sydney lockdown. I went into Queensland. Uh, I was able to miss all of the Queensland lockdowns in, in Townsville and the Sunshine Coast, um, have a great holiday with my driving holiday with my family because we obviously couldn't go overseas. I was able to go down western New South Wales and dodge all the lockdowns and end up at the snow for a week in the snow at our ski lodge and then come back to Sydney and and all while the business made its revenue target, you know, it, yep. it was on budget uh, and profit. And then I came back and had, you know, four weeks of the of the marathon Sydney lockdown. That was the yeah. benefit to me. That yeah. now I've got yeah. I've got kind of the generic textbook benefit. Um, the generic textbook benefit is well, the first thing I'll say is if you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. Um, but if you are somebody who would like to see your business grow and outperform average companies. So if you know your business is is a business that's destined for more, and if you're somebody who wants to grow your business and you want to outperform everybody else. So so the the top percentile companies um, as analyzed by McKinsey's last year through the end of the 2020 part of the pandemic and into 2021, the companies that outperformed the top growers, so they buy by two and a half times so they grew at a rate of two and a half times everybody else. So let's assume everybody else is growing at the same rate and most of the business is listening. I'm going to be cynical and say your, your business probably is only growing at the rate of the economy um, and the businesses around it. It's not actually outperforming. Um, so if you're somebody who wants your business to grow at two times or two and a half times, which is the, the top percentile, and there was obviously lots of, there was a few companies that grew faster than that. There's a whole bunch of invisible assets and intangible assets. And yeah. it's investing in, looking at process and and it's investing in looking time in motion studies and and looking at small regularly looking for small improvements and 
I'll just give you an example. If you were training for the Olympics, you can't show up on the first day and, and set an Olympic rec record in the swimming pool. It takes laps and laps and laps and repetitions and repetitions and repetitions. And so I guess the nuts and bolts of a management system is, and the question to people listening is, how often do you stop and look at a small part of your business and make a small change and improvement? And it's the small changes and improvements on a daily basis over 365 days that sees a monumental movement of businesses' efficiency and performance over a 12-month period. That's all yeah. I've been doing. It's not rocket science, yeah. It's, yeah. but it takes a huge amount of discipline to get up and go to the business gym and do the work. Yeah, no, spot on. And I think if you can do 1% change per day, I mean, that's 365% in the year, right? So uh, even if you just do the work days, it's still over 200%. <laughs> so yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, people wanting to grow. And I, I love the example you gave of your situation. I, I remember chatting to you when you were on your holiday too. And I thought, oh, smart man. I was in Canberra when it got announced. And I thought, should I just go back to Sydney and be in lockdown or should I do the bolt down to the snow as well? And I, you should have done the bolt. I, I should have done the bolt. I made the, I made the wrong decision there. But, um, mate, I, I, I want to shift gear here because what you're talking about there, taking a holiday, being able to take nine weeks off, four phone calls, I mean, I, I, if I could summarise that in a word, I, I call that freedom, right? This sense of freedom. And, and I reckon that most business owners go into business, and, and I don't want to sound too woo-woo here, but this sense of freedom, I think, is actually what drives it. P people may not call it freedom, but people kind of want to be their own boss. You know, they, they don't want to answer to somebody else. They, they want to be able to kind of work their own hours. And, and I definitely think people want to earn more money or the money that they believe that they're worth. And I think if you take all of those complex subjects, you could roll it into one word and say it's kind of freedom, really, freedom to be who you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, that, you know, when we start to unpack that, I think a lot of business owners don't, don't necessarily get there. You know, they often feel trapped by their business. It's, if it underperforms, there's stress there. You know, in terms of their own personal, even their own personal wealth, Often their business is their largest asset. They're completely undiversified. They're overweight in that class. It, it doesn't necessarily give the framework for the kind of life they want. And, and I think, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about this, that business is really just an, it's an asset. It's not you. It's just an asset. It's a vehicle to deliver you the life you want. So, you know, start getting clear on what kind of life you want and then build the business to deliver on it, right? But as a part of that, I guess I wanted to sort of talk about you know, this idea of growth, because a lot of people listening to this will be saying, well, my business is not where I need it to be to give me that life. So how do I get there, right? How do I get this business to do what I need it to do? And so the, this idea of growth, I find really, really interesting because growth to a lot of people means chase more revenue, you know, cut a bit more cost, squeeze a bit more profit. And I guess, and, and we talk a bit on this show about you know, what are true value drivers in a business? And, you know, Exit Advisory is our main firm. We sell a lot of businesses. We do a lot of transactions. When you look at a business valuation, and there's lots of different methods, but the most common one, right, is a multiple, a number times your net profit. So when we talk about growing, I just have this, I kind of break it into these two parts. We can grow our profit, but how do we grow that number, that multiple, right? And and you know, I know you've had offers on your business and I want to get to that eventually, but I, when you talk about systems and operating systems, I see that actually having an impact on both of those levers. 
run a better business, earn more money, but also build assets in your business. So, I mean, if you can take a holiday for nine weeks, you must have a better multiple than the average guy who's stuck in his business for 40 to 60 hours a week. So I yeah, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, talk me through your view look, on this sort of stuff. Yeah, look, you, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I think that it, it's diff- there's a couple of things. Human behaviour is, is it's really easy to be reactive. So it's really easy to kind of just react to whatever's happen, happening, take orders, process the orders, fix the mistakes and problems, kind of try to do things, you know, convince yourself that you've got a quality product, but actually if you ask yourself the question, maybe you don't. Um, yeah, so you are work, working in the business though. It sounds like working in the business, right? <laughs> That's right. So exactly right. And, and just being reactive. And I think it's really easy to just kind of go through the morning routine you know, put on the put on the out the work outfit and go to work in the morning and and right, throw it at me. Yep. It takes a lot of discipline to turn off the smartphone, not check your email, don't take calls to say eleven or twelve o'clock, um, mm. and, and work on your business for half the day and then work in your business for the other half of the day. So I think I fell into the trap of, and I've been in that trap that, that you talk about. I've fallen into that trap of of having this kind of ideal about what this looks like. Um, and, and then not knowing how to get there, essentially, how to, how to grind out of it. Mm. Um, and I like to use a lot of analogies, and it's the analogy of kind of how do I cross over to the other side of the river where I'm on holidays and I'm on freedom, and you can't, it's kind of, you know, it's almost binary. It's on or it's off. Mm. The reality is that it, it is about small movements and small changes. And so the best piece of advice I've got, you know, the first thing, actually, let me answer the the first part of the question, which is for me, I'm building an asset. I'm not yes. building a job. I don't want a job. I want an asset. So I want to go and do other things. And so I ask myself the question, what did I do last week that I can delegate to somebody? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will be, I'm not making enough profit. And if I delegate it to somebody, then actually they, they're going to take the profit and I'm going to have nothing to do and no income. And, mm-hmm. and all my staff are going to take all of the money or all of my, my business is going to take all my money. There's nothing left over. So I'm going to stay there and do some stuff so that I can actually collect some money. Yep. The reality is that is your first and fundamental mistake. You're not giving your team a chance to practice and grow and get more efficient. And like growing a hedge in the garden, you've got to grow it. You prune off the bits that aren't going in the direction you want, um, and you've got to keep doing that. So you've got yeah. to keep pruning, um, you know, small pruning to get your business to grow in the right direction. Mm. Um, and then you've got to be auditing what you do and don't do. Now, you might be doing some things that you don't like doing. You're not very good at it. That's the reality. And there's a shitload in this business that I'm not really very good at. In fact, almost everything. Um, (laughs) Because I've got people now that I've given them time to practice. They're better at it than me because they go out with their friends on the weekend. They have a weekend switched off and they come back and they switch on and they do their job and they do it really well and they're focused on it and they're practicing and they're passionate about it. Mm. So I think... It, for me, it's an asset and I'm moving on to build another asset and another asset. And I'm looking, as you know, I'm looking at buying more businesses so that I can go and do that. And so instead of taking my money out of my business and putting it into the stock exchange or into real estate, I'm taking it out. I'm putting some in those places, but I'm putting it back into my business and I'm putting it into other things so that my investments are diversified across the portfolio. And this, yep. this asset is part of my portfolio, performs yep. very well. And I've got to keep, I've got to keep polishing it and cleaning it and and doing some 
mechanical maintenance on it like yeah. like any operating machine or organism you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so questions here, and I'm not saying suggesting this is you've had this particular situation in your business, but I'm curious in your thoughts here. A lot of people who are running one business, you know, or they've got all their eggs in this one basket. That business is probably their largest asset. In many cases, actually worth more than their home, right? Yeah, yeah. When something happens in that business that is, ne- I mean, gosh, we've just come through a uh, a global pandemic, right? Some people have had their businesses turned on its head. There can be a level of stress, right, that, that comes with being so overweight in one asset that is now underperforming or potentially even facing c- catastrophe, right? And I just, I'm curious, you know, like that, that I think can play with people's minds and even impact their decision-making. You know, as a guy who's out there building multiple businesses, is it a bit easy to, easier to be less emotionally overwhelmed and stuff like that if, if, when things do go up and down? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I think there's a real there's a there's a basic kind of um, personal principle that I have, which is I don't celebrate any wins, and so and I don't I don't worry about the losses. So by not so so I think a lot of people go, oh, I made a huge amount of money this month. Yes, I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I like okay, cool. It went to plan. What's the next part of the plan? Um, yeah. If it if it was. Um, you know, if I had a big month, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a month with a massive loss. Like I was like, we had the loss. I remember standing on the balcony in the back of my house. I drove in the driveway, um, you know, past the letterbox. As I was driving, I've got quite a long driveway. I'm driving down the driveway and I'm thinking to myself, this thing's going to go on for three years. And, and I was thinking about it this morning. We're kind of at, we're not quite at two years yet. We'll get to February next year. We'll be at two years. It's going to play out for another year after that. So yeah. hello, February 2023. Talk to me then about the pandemic being over. Um, yeah. Get ready for more lockdowns. Get ready for more restrictions. Um, you know, the, the politicians here in Australia are placating to a, 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 an economy and a group of humans who are tired and mm. we've done our bit. It's not improving and, and so very short-term minded. But um, I'm, I'm betting on this thing playing out. Now, if it doesn't, then that's great because we're going to go even better. But I'm planning for this. Yeah. For more hurdles and more potholes, yeah. but I don't. You know, I remember standing there and having this massive loss and going, "I can't believe I'm back in this position again." You know, mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. all of those fears from you know back in that you know being 14 years old and then 18 years old and my father losing the business. All those fears rise up for me, and I'm like, "Okay, well, yeah. how do I turn that into energy? How do I turn that into focus? And what do I what am I doing about that? Like instead yeah. of getting caught up in it, so I don't celebrate the wins. I don't worry about the losses." You know, I'm conscious of it, but this, Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, talks about the Stockdale paradox, which is you you have to confront the brutal facts, but you can be optimistic, but confront the brutal facts. Don't be delusionally optimistic. And so that's me as a person, very stoic. Mm. And I think that um, what you've got to be doing is you do, and I'm a risk management, you know, 10 years ago, I was a risk management consultant. And so I'm thinking ahead and I'm thinking, okay, what if someone leaves? What am I doing about that? You know, and so I ask myself the question, what am I doing about that? You know, things come up and I panic about it and I go, what am I doing about that? And so, and then I get out my to-do list and I write, write a response to that. And I say, okay, well, okay, we're going to run out of cash. We're not going to make any sales. What do we do about that? So, so I've built a business that has an average transaction of $7,000 across a thousand customers, you know? And so I don't have like a lot of businesses like one of our one of the businesses in our family group has 
one customer that's like 90% of its revenue and that's a massive risk. Yes. And, yeah, and we are constantly working on that. We've tried to go get more customers. We got some other customers. They didn't turn out to be very good, but at least we did. We did some revenue with them and I'm constantly trying to get that customer down to half. You know, that's my goal is I can't get it down to nothing, but I can get it down to half the revenue. Um, yeah. And so we've got to, we've got to over-service that customer in that business because they're a key part of the revenue for that business. And it does cause stress and it does cause, but but every day I'm saying, okay, what am I doing about that? Okay, yeah. what's our account plans? Who are we talking to? What new product or service do we put into the market in a different part of the market so we can diversify our risk? Yeah. And so I think that's my answer is how are you diversifying your risk? And it's interesting because that risk you talk about there, concentration risk is one of the things that we look at a lot when we're doing business valuations, right? You know, that's one of those things that impacts the multiple because the multiple is a reflection of risk. You know, the yeah. higher the multiple means the lower the risk. It's it's just an inverse relationship there. And it's something that I think a lot of people struggle to get their heads around that I actually could be growing the value of my business even without increasing my revenue if I just focus yeah. on the right things. Yeah, so, I think and I think that people listening, I think the best thing you can do is talk to Simon you know, reach out to Simon, send him a direct message on LinkedIn or send him a direct message to, you know, email Exit Advisory Group and find out what the levers are for the valuation of your business. I'll give you an example. I was talking to my wife last night about our house. Um, our house over the last four and a half years has gone up $79,000 Australian a month for four wow. and a half years. 79, and that's tax-free. It's ridiculous. Mm. But so, so my question to everybody listening is, how much is the share price of your business increasing per month? And mm. so get engaged with Simon, which is what I did. You know, Simon and I had a bit of a chat and, and get engaged and say, okay, well, you, yes, you're making profit, but investing in your invisible and your intangible assets might mean that actually, while you're not measuring, um, measuring profit, you can measure your share price and you can do a check-in with Simon or you know, you, you could revalue your business every year to make sure that things are coming to fruition. So then the question is, well, what is going to help me drive up the value? Get the Find out what the top five levers are and then the other five levers, if there's 10 or if there's four and four, if there's eight levers, whatever they might be, and say to, you know, okay, let's do evaluation. Then let's put some strategic projects in place to be, to be ticking those things off. That's all I've been doing for the last 17 years. And I've, yeah. had the, I've had the unique advantage of working with clients doing the work we do and then, then you know, copying the good ideas. And, and when I started yeah. the business, my wife worked at Blackmore's The Vitamin Company. I heard the great people things that they were doing. I implemented those things straight away. We still do a lot of that stuff 17 years later because I thought they're yeah. great. That's the nice things to do for your people. Um, invest in your people. Keep doing that. And that's paid huge dividends for us over the years, both on our valuation because we've got very mature management team so it, it doesn't need me. It needs me for the yeah. kind of visionary stuff, but it doesn't need me to operate the business on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, find out what levers are going to have the biggest impact and then know when and how to pull those levers. So um, you're right, it's, it's certainly not rocket science, um, but I do think a lot of business owners get a little bit too close to it to be able to sometimes identify those levers and and even get some comfort around pulling them sometimes. So um, Absolutely. Mate, I want to chat a little bit about um, your business and people approaching you to potentially acquire your company. Um, you know, one of the things that we've had a lot of guests on this show 
that have been approached by somebody who taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, Kobe, hey, John, whatever, whoever it might be, I'm, we're really keen to buy your business. And, and I think one of the more common reactions, first of all, is, um, wow, um, massive ego inflation. I feel pretty good. Somebody actually knows who I am and wants to buy me. I feel pretty special. And you should. I mean, that's lovely. It's, it, it is a, definitely an indicator that you're doing something right. But in many, many cases, they've ended up going down this path thinking, isn't this a wonderful relationship I've got with these people? And then they spend six, nine, 12. I had one guy tell me 18 months where these people basically peeled them apart layer by layer, getting to the core of their business. And, and all the while, this business owner is feeling like, okay, they're, they're digging deeper, they're digging deeper, this is going to happen, the deal's happening. They almost even, some of them start spending the money mentally, <laughs> all the while to get to six, nine, 12 months, whatever it might be, and then the entire thing falls over and they feel completely and utterly abused. Um, so we've seen that happen. And I guess I, I, I've got lots of questions for you. I know you've been out, uh, approached on numerous occasions. Was there a moment in your journey where you thought, I'm building this business to sell? How did these offers come about? Talk to us a little bit about this because this is a mind shift for a lot of business owners. Yeah, look, I, 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 definitely, um, I definitely started my business on day one with a view to selling. Mm-hmm. Um, that view's subsequently changed um, and, it, and it's changed as a result of those, those due diligence processes um, and, and you kind of have this, you know, you, you, you will have this moment in time where you go, actually, hang on a minute, if my business is running really well um, and I take the money out of it and I put it into another asset, will that asset outperform it? And you get to this point where you go, oh, actually, hang on a minute, it won't. <laughs> yep. So it's really interesting. Do I take the money out and put it into real estate? Do I take the money out and put it into shares? Do I take the money out and put it into another startup? Mm. Maybe another startup could outperform potentially with some angel investing, but it's high risk. Um, so, so how do you, you know, what's low risk, what's high risk, what do you do? So, so I guess you do have that moment, like the, how are you going to spend the money? I'm not interested in the car or buying stuff. I want to put in another investment that's going to outperform the investment it's currently in. Yep. Um, so, so I think, you know, I think that there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, the moment in time when you get approached, it does stroke your ego, but it's no different to being approached by a really attractive person in a bar. They walk up to you and want to talk to you. It's like, it's exactly the same feeling, right? It's very flattering. Like why Absolutely. this very attractive person wants to come and talk to me, male or female or whatever, you know, and, and so, you, you know, you're like, you're very flattered. And so that's what we, you know, as humans, we want that. We, you know, we've got fear of approach and fear of rejection. So it's really nice when someone comes to talk to you. Now, this, I, I, I think the first mistake that I made and I think a lot of people make is the assumption that that person knows what they're doing. <laughs> and when you talk about people peeling back businesses layer by layer by layer, for me, that's the first sign that they've got analysis paralysis. They mm. don't really know what they're doing or they're trying to get a cheaper price. Yes. They're trying to get your business for the cheapest price possible. So they're going to build you up and then crush you. Mm. And so it is business is a full contact sport. It is the front row of a football team coming, coming at you like a brick wall. Um, and, and that is their goal. They, everybody wants to know that they got a really great price and it was a no-brainer. It was a, you know, they want to say to themselves, I got an absolute bargain. And so they, they're going to beat you up emotionally. If you're not prepared and you haven't worked the levers and you're not informed, they're going to beat you up emotionally to get your business for the lowest pro- possible price. They're going to erode your, erode your confidence. 
they're going to say it's not worth anything. And I had someone try to do that to me last week or actually, you know, two or three weeks ago. And I was like, no, stop talking. You approached me because you thought it was attractive. You told me all the things you like. Now you're trying to get it for a cheaper price. Go away. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so and so I give that, I give those buyers A, they 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 they, they their opening statement was we missed out on buying another business because mm. we didn't offer enough money. And I'm like, well, you know, have you learned something from that? Someone <laughs> was prepared to pay more money for you. So you better like lift your expectation. They didn't yeah. change your expectations. Um, then they came in and started to say, well, you know, because of this and this and this. And I was like, no, I know what the business is worth to the right buyer. And I'm going to wait for a buyer that will pay the price that I want. You can yeah. pay that price, um, you know, but I'm going to wait. And so, so here's the tip. Don't assume that a buyer that comes to you is a five out of five. Don't assume that they, even though they're nice and they're, they're giving you compliments, that they've got your interests at heart. Your yeah. quote, Simon, is they are coming to buy future profit and they're trying to get that as cheap as possible. Indeed. And, Indeed. and you have to start with that assumption. And so in, in following that, then understand that, okay, what are the levers and what's the upside to them? Now, the buyers that typically approach me with my business are looking at bolting my business up to another business that is running at a higher multiple. So they say, for example, the multiple is... Let's for the case study for people listening, say your multiple is three and mm. and have a look at the buyers and what's the multiple on their business. And if they're a bigger business and you're getting attached to a bigger business, they might be trading in a multiple of six. Mm. So there's no payback. There's no mm. five-year, three-year, two-year payback on the business. They're getting payback on the day they take possession. Your business went from three times multiple to six times multiple. They got all their money back on day one. Yep. You know, and so I think get informed. And so, you know, for those people watching the video, you can see bookshelf behind me. There's 20 books here on my bookshelves on mergers and acquisitions, all the poor quality ones and some of the good quality ones. And, and that is one of the things that I think you've got to, you know, if you're going to go into that process and you think about being bought in the future, and this is where we started. Mm. And, and I've had, you know, I've obviously learned a lot and I knew a fair bit to start with, but then a lot down the track. Yeah. Um, what I didn't know was where my mind, my mind would shift. And I'll talk about that to finish off was that. Yeah. I've informed myself if I'm gonna go try to buy some businesses. I think if you're gonna, if you're thinking of selling, go on a buying spree. Figure out how to fund it. Talk to your bank. All the multiples, all the things that you need to do to borrow money to buy a business, you've got to do to sell your business anyway. Hmm. So go and get go and get approval for a couple of million bucks and go to try to buy a business, and then you'll you'll understand how a buyer is performing because you'll give yourself some experience. Yeah. Then you can go into a transaction really well informed. So, so in other words, all the all the challenges you have as a potential buyer, they're the same challenges these other buyers will have, and so you can kind of smell the bullshit when it's coming from a mile away, right? You can, 100%. And, uh, 100%. I, I certainly see this all the time where we go, this guy has absolutely no ability to fund the, the business he's inquiring on. Let's That's not right. waste any time, and certainly let's not share any sensitive information with them. So, exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So the final thing that I didn't realize, and that is. The mindset shift and people kind of told this to me but i didn't realize until i experienced it myself which is the times that you think oh, i've had enough i've had a gut full i'm burnt out i've had no freedom i'm sick of people i'm sick of customers i'm sick of everything those are the low points and that's when your business is at its lowest price and and so people say well if you you know 
if your business is running really well, that's the best time to sell because you're emotionally detached from the want to sell. Yep. And so yep. mindset shift for me, which is where I'm at now, is, well, I can't move that money into another asset class. This, one, this asset class is performing the best out of my whole portfolio right now. Yep. And so, you know, I think that that becomes an important point, which is why do you want to sell? Yep. And, and it's because I want to retire or mm. it's because I'm sick of the industry or, well, it's okay. Well, yeah. if, if you didn't have to work in the business every day, would you still, be, would you still leave your investment in it? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's, um, you know, that's the piece about, that's the bit I like about the exit advisory group, which is the advisory journey, which is, well, actually, let's work on these things that make this, A, a really valuable business, but it's a good asset to own. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and uh, you know, understanding people's reasons and motivations for wanting to exit and planning around that and making sure you're covering yourself is, is just so critical. Um, I, I will say with the asset side of things, it was interesting. I, I was having a catch up with a friend of mine who's a, uh, an investing uh, investment and wealth manager, um, an advisor. And she was, we were talking about this concept of exiting and the performance of our assets. And, and even she says, like, your business will be your highest performing asset if you're running it properly anyway. That's right. And she goes, of course, the mental shift for a lot of business owners is, is, hang on, but my business makes me this much. How do I invest in other things? And I think there is definitely a point in time, all of us, right? You, you can't keep running at things, you know, like you're 25 or 45 when you start getting to 65 perhaps. So you may decide that it's okay to sell your business. You may be willing to invest in assets that give you a lower return, particularly if that you don't have to put much into it if it's passive or if it's, you know. So this this idea of what assets should I own to support the life I want, you know, we've always come full circle here again, but, you know, what kind of life do I want and therefore how do I shape the assets around me to deliver that life? And, you know, hey, for a lot of us, our business is going to be a key driver of that for a big part of our lives. But, you know, I, I just advocate for everybody to be thinking that one further step ahead and making sure you give yourself enough runway to shape your business asset to to deliver in that overall portfolio. Yeah, and I guess there's there's there is you know one of our strategic modeling and anyone who hasn't you know wants to think about well what do I include in my strategic plan you, you know th there are points in time where time where it makes sense for example like if you're talking about the share market well there's times when you exit and there's times when you enter so you know I I guess um you know I I, I don't want people to kind of deny the fact that. Your health might not be amazing and you need to exit. Um, you're exactly right. You're at the, the end of your career and, you know, I'm going to, you know, we're going to go traveling and this kind of stuff. I just want to park my money somewhere with a good, you know, re re percent return per annum. So, you know, in the operational phase, and that's what I'm all about, I'm all about growing businesses and prepping them. You know, I do the step before you um, and I'm doing it myself, which is, you know, I'll, I'll give people 10 headings. So, what are you doing to continue to grow your revenue? What are you doing to continue to grow your debt capacity? Are you crystal clear on your annual month-to-month -month research and development investment? Are you looking at industry trends and you're, you're pivoting to industry trends? Are you looking at geographical trends and pivoting towards geographical trends or a way? So if it's trending down in an industry and it's trending down in a geography, you know, pivot away from it. What's your mergers, acquisitions and divestments program? And so you might not sell all the business, you might sell part of the business. Yep. Resource reallocation, so backing winners and cutting losers loose. Now, a lot of businesses are really good do at doing that with their product line, 
you know, they can, they'll cut off the product products that aren't performing, and they'll they'll add to the products that are performing, and do the mergers and acquisitions, and also the the research and development investment to kind of you know place more winners. What's your capital expenditure? So your reinvestment of your profits back into the maintenance and growth of your business. What are the productivity improvements that you're doing, and what are the differentiation improvements you're doing? So those kind of ten things are you know, are part of that ongoing strategy. And if you, when you build your quarterly or annually, annual strategy, make sure you're doing, say, three of those 10 things on a rotational basis. Yep. That is what's going to give you in the long term a really healthy business. And you know, if you're somebody who's listening to this and you can say, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to build for another three years or I'm going to build for another two years, I'm going to engage with Simon, I'm going to get Simon on board and then I'm going to build and then I'm going to evaluate then those are the things you want to make sure are on your strategic plan. Yeah, absolutely. They're all fantastic topics. And, and, and if I can just add a small point to that is that don't, don't when you're looking at any of those 10 areas, don't look at it and say, oh, I have to get this to perfection before I can move on. Think about what is the next logical level to build that towards. It won't be perfect, but it'll be to a level that is probably outperforming other things in your company and then shift and move to the other things and get them up to that level and keep moving, right? It's, you know, ha- having balance across your organization is actually important. Um, it'll help things run smoother and it, and it also gives a, a far better percep- perception of how you manage risk. So, um, so mate, thank you. That, those 10 points are, are fabulous. Um, I was going to ask you to share a couple of tips. You've shared 10. Um, I, I just love that. It's typical Kobe giving a lot of value here. So, I know, you know, and I know we could talk about this stuff all day. Um, Clearly, you've got uh, other people that uh, will, will demand your time, so I'm going to have to let you go very shortly. But tell me, uh, mate, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Yeah, 100%. The best place to get me is on LinkedIn, at Kobe Simmett is my handle, or on Instagram, at Kobe Simmett's my handle. Our business is www.bestpractice.biz. It's B-I-Z. So best practice with a C, dot biz. Um, and I, look, I think you know my parting word, which is, you know, for everybody all of the time, which is have a think about last week, audit last week, what did you like doing? What did you not like doing? And do more of what you like and less of what you don't like. And if you do that, then you're going to be in the right place in the future. Absolutely. You're going to be a happier person too. (laughs) Mate, thanks again. You've been a wonderful guest. You've shared a lot of insights. It's been brilliant. Thanks for coming on the show. Mate, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you. I look forward to doing lots more of it. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes.
Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.